I think I've told you the story about the young girl who had disobeyed her parents and was sent to a room. And after a few minutes, her father came in to talk to her. And this teary-eyed little girl asked, why do we do wrong things? And the father replied, well, you know, sometimes the devil tells us to do something wrong and we listen to him. We need to learn to listen to God instead. To which the girl said, but God doesn't talk loud enough. God does talk loud enough, but too often we aren't really trying to listen. Where does God speak? He speaks by his written word, the Bible, and only by the Bible. We often expect to hear God speak through our heart, right? For the scriptures tell us our heart is desperately wicked. Our conscience is fallen. So we think, well, maybe God will simply speak in the you know, the happenstance of the world. But we live in a fallen world and there is deception that's there. So we hope maybe there's a big booming voice in the sky and we forget that the Bible is the recording of the big booming voice in the sky throughout the ages. And so this year, as we are going through, particularly the book of Joshua, along the way, we're going to intersperse sermons here about what the Bible says about the Bible with that goal of wanting us to be able to understand the Bible better. So many people have said to me, I just don't feel like I understand God's word the way I want to. And especially to see how it all fits together. Kind of know bits and pieces here and there, but how does the whole Bible fit together that I feel like I have an understanding and I'm applying all of what God has revealed? So that's what it is that we want to try and do a little bit today. We're going to do that by looking at a key passage of Scripture from 2 Timothy 3, probably a familiar passage uh, to most of us, but one it's always good to return to. Before we return to it, let's go to God in prayer. Our blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear to read, to mark, to learn, to inwardly digest your word. Help us to listen to your word that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you've given to us in our Savior Jesus Christ. And so as we pray now for your Holy Spirit to come and to bear witness to the reading and the proclamation of your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher knowing that he is not worthy but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to focus on 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, but always eager to put Scripture in its larger context. So we're going to begin at chapter 3 at verse 10 and then read down through chapter 4, verse 8. Listen to God's word. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy 
you have known, the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The Apostle Paul's encouragement and charge to young Pastor Timothy. You know, there's many places in my Bible where I have underlined words and phrases and whole verses and passages. And there's Lots of places in my Bible where I've put notes in the margin, but there's only a handful of places where I have also highlighted the text. This is one of those places. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Consider the first phrase of that with me. All Scripture is God-breathed. God breathed. The Greek word for that is theonostos. Theonostos. You can see in that word, you don't have to speak Greek to see the parts in there, right? Theo, from which we get theology, uh, all the theo words, it's God. Clearly, that's the word for God. Neustos, that's one of those words you look and go, that's got to be Greek, because nobody puts P and N together in the English language, right? The only time we see that is in the word pneumonia which has to do with the inflammation of the lungs. So it comes from that same root word where we get pneumonia dealing with the lungs, and actually from the verb that means to blow. So it's that sense of wind and blow and breath. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is the breathed-out Word of God. There is life in God's breath. God took dirt and formed it and then breathed into it to give life to Adam. God breathed out words like, let there be light, and life happened in creation. All scripture is God-breathed life. I've told you about how it is the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy has had a shaping influence on my life, and we've taught it here along the way. Uh, This is a church that has been built on that sense of uh, Scripture being inerrant. Um, The evangelical church says that the Scriptures are inerrant. It isn't just man's creation, but this is inspired by God, given by uh, 
uh, inspiration. It is the God-breathed word and it is perfect God's word to us. That was remarkably different than what it was that I had learned growing up. Uh, went to a church all growing up that had a, a mixed theology um, and mixed beliefs and Sunday school teachers that differed from each other and what it was that they believed and got taught all kinds of various things. And then I went to a secular university, a sociology and psychology degree, and lots of people trying to search for answers and asking questions and answers, but none of it coming from a sense of God's inerrant perfect word. And then I went to a seminary that I refer to as the bad seminary because it was a seminary that also did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, did not believe that Scripture is God-breathed. And it wasn't until finally I had a couple of wise pastors who spent some time with me and showed me the Scriptures. And one of the first things they gave to me was the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And it was incredibly helpful to look at that and to consider again all the challenges and all the critics of what they had challenged about the Scripture. There was a man who once had said that he didn't believe that it was inspired because he said he'd received no inspiration from the Bible, although he had gone through it several times. And a wise preacher said to him, let it go through you once, and you will tell a different story. Indeed, as I recognized the God-breathed word, and for the Holy Spirit to begin to do a God-breathing work in my life as I meditated on his word, my life was transformed. Critics of the Bible will also say that part of why they don't believe the inerrancy is because they think uh, of uh, the old game telephone, right? You tell one person something and you pass it down the line and by the time it gets to the end of the line, the story has changed uh, uh, almost completely. And so they say, so even if God had spoken way back when, there's no way that what we have now is still what he originally spoke. What's amazing is that that's exactly what has happened. God spoke, and what we still have today, even though we don't have the original autographs, the original writings, is still consistent. People say, well, you know, we don't have the original autographs, so we can't know for sure. Anybody who's gone to Washington, D.C. and look at some of the ancient documents there, we call them ancient, a couple hundred years old, right? The Declaration of Independence, how faded it is. It'll eventually fade away completely. In just a couple hundred years, it's got parts that are still barely legible. We're talking about thousands of years old. Of course, we don't have the original writings. But what we have is copies that have been passed along throughout the ages. There are more than 3,000 Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament, 8,000 Latin Vulgate manuscripts, 1,500 Septuagint Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament, 5,700 ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts. There are almost 30,000 total ancient manuscripts, more than 100 that are older than 400 BC that have been able to be preserved miraculously. The average classical text has less than 20 ancient manuscripts. And for the scriptures, there are tens of thousands. And when people look at the manuscripts throughout the ages, it is remarkable how few variants there are. And whenever there is a variant, it's always footnoted in the Bible. And usually what we see is the variants make almost no change to the meaning of the text. The variants are usually a scribe somewhere along the way that's made a, an, an addition to clarify something that was in there. And so we kind of know that things that have been added are 
are the things that have been added and are simply clarifying remarks. And so you can go back to the original as what was first put there without all the additions. The additions are just helpful markers. All scripture is God-breathed. God not only breathed out his word miraculously, but then has miraculously preserved his word so that we still have access to it. That as we read God's word, we are still reading his word. And he still breathes life as we meditate on it together. Now, my guess is that hardly anybody in this room would disagree with anything I just said. But there is a practical way in which we reject inerrancy. A practical way in which we reject this as God-breathed word. Because I'll say to people, do you believe that this is the inerrant, infallible, God-breathed out word? And they'll say, oh, absolutely, yes, I believe that. And I'll say, how much time do you spend reading it? How much time do you spend meditating on God's word? Um, well, <laughs> right? If we really think this is God's word, shouldn't it consume us? When God's word says to meditate on it day and night, shouldn't that be something that delights us to say, oh, I want to hear God speak to me. It's right here. And we have such access to it today. We can take it with us anywhere to have the fullness of it so unique to us and so many previous generations that had scraps at best. We have God's breathed word to us in its entirety and what a delight to be able to meditate on it. Let us not only believe it, but practically believe it as well. So look again at that first phrase. It said, all scripture is God breathed, but consider the first two words of that. All scripture is God breathed. Not just the highlighted verses not just the stuff that's underlined, not just the stuff that has already had an impact on your life, but all scripture is God-breathed. When people uh, used to ask me what my favorite book or the Bible was, uh, to be a little persnickety, I would say Habakkuk, because I would get that kind of a look. <laughs> Expect you to say something like Romans, right, or one of the Gospels, or you know, maybe the Psalms, but Habakkuk? I say because I have no idea what Habakkuk is about, but I'm eager to find out. And then I did read Habakkuk, and I meditated on it, I studied it, and I said, well, this really is some good stuff. And so my answer used to change along the way to whatever book I hadn't felt like I'd really grasped yet. And I've had the great privilege of being able to go to seminary and spend a life that has been devoted to studying the Word. And so when people ask me what my favorite book of the Bible is, I say it's whatever one I don't feel like I know as well as I can because there's still God-breathed word there that has not impacted me the way that it can. Oh, to reach out and to grab hold of those parts of Scripture that have not yet fully grabbed hold of me. That's what it is that excites me about the Scriptures. I'm glad to go back to favorite passages and passages that have already shaped and influenced me and to return to meditating on those, but to continue to dig out the treasure trove that all Scripture is God-breathed. And so I think about that, and I think about the number of churches, even churches that would claim to believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture and to breathe, believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, and yet on any given Sunday, they don't preach the Word. They might pull in a verse here and there, or maybe not even do that, but give you ten ways to build your marriage, five steps to abundant joy, seven tools for your parent toolbox. I had a friend that said, yeah, there's a lot of preachers who give what itching ears want to hear. I call them longhorn preachers, a good point here and there and a lot of bull in between. 
And it's not just churches, but retreats. You can, go to, you can go to conferences and retreats that are Christian conferences. You don't even need to bring a Bible because you're never going to use it. I think the best thing that somebody can do for you is to take Scripture that is God-breathed and to read it and to proclaim it, that God might breathe out life. So there was, for years, uh, those that had actually tried to move away from a liberalism to what was called neo-orthodoxy. And the way they would introduce the reading of Scripture is they would say, uh, listen for God's Word. And then those that took it even a bit more extreme through that, it was, listen for God's Word to you. And it was this idea that somehow God spoke, but He spoke sort of in between the lines of Scripture. You had to listen for his word. It was kind of like a secret message. And really what it was, was a secret message just for you. The Holy Spirit was going to speak a particular message just to you. That's not what this is God's word. Listen to God's word, not listen for God's word. You're listening to God's word. It's not a hidden message. There's nothing secret in there. The Holy Spirit isn't going to tell you something that isn't revealed there, but is the word itself. And so we need to pray for the Lord to help us to listen to God's word so that he speaks loud enough as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and ears to hear it as more than just human words. There was a time in which uh, the church had officially affirmed what is known as the Auburn Affirmation. This goes back to 1924. The Auburn Affirmation meant that a Presbyterian pastor could be a pastor without believing the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, or the miracles of Christ. You heard that right, 1924. And a person could be a pastor without believing those five fundamentals of the Christian faith. That's why it was there have been splits away from the church, the mainline church. And really what we said is we didn't split away from the mainline church. The mainline church simply split away from Christianity. And so we, as part of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, have held on to the fundamentals of the faith. But even as we do that today, we still must ask ourselves, are we holding to those fundamentals? Not just in abstraction, not just educationally, not just orthodoxy, but is it orthopraxy? Is it the right practice? Do I, in practice, still believe these fundamental truths of the faith? So consider again the rest of verse 16 and verse 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do we believe that Scripture is useful for all those things? And do we believe that Scripture is uniquely useful for all those things? And do we take all Scripture to do those things? There's the mythic story told of the devil walking along with two of his cohorts, and they saw a man ahead of them pick up something shiny. What did he find? asked the cohort. A piece of the truth, the devil replied. Well, doesn't it bother you that he found a piece of the truth? Asked the cohort. No, said the devil. I will see to it that he makes a religion out of it. Right? We can be tempted to do that as to take a part of Scripture, a piece of truth, 
and to make that what our entire religion is about, is one piece of truth. But it's to say all Scripture shapes what it is that we believe and how it is we practice what we believe. And Scripture that interprets Scripture, that Scripture shapes Scripture. And so we need to be aware of if we're taking just one piece of truth out of context or one piece of truth not connected to all of Scripture. Scripture doesn't contradict itself, but it shapes and and gives boundary and and, and, uh, speaks to each other. And I say all that because Ligonier, that we know well, Ligonier Ministries along with Lifeway, recently teamed up to survey Americans on beliefs today. And they asked people to agree or disagree with a number of statements. One of the statements was this. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Do you agree or disagree? Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Probably does not surprise you that 60% of Americans agree with that. 60% of Americans today agree that religious belief is simply a matter of personal opinion, that there is no objective truth. That's probably not surprising. We think, right, that's why we need to do evangelism and to share objective truth, the truth of God's word with people. But here's the sad part. They also asked those who identified themselves as evangelicals. Now, already needing to start qualifying that word because evangelical is now becoming a political uh, term more than it seems to be a uh, term of those who have evangelical Christian beliefs. The evangel, the gospel. Evangelicals were those that held to the fundamentals, that believed the gospel. It is not a political designation. It is a theological designation. But those who identified as evangelicals, who are supposed to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, who are supposed to believe that this is God's breathed word, 32% of evangelicals, 32% of evangelicals believe that religious belief is simply a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. That's not evangelical. Evangelical is that you believe the Bible is objectively true. And so I think a lot of people who try to fake it, try to fake believing in the Bible, or even try to fake sounding holy, right? Like we spend more time reading the Bible than we really do. Who's the comedian that does the whole bit about naming his bed the Word? I just love getting into the Word. Every morning and every night, I can't wait to be in the Word, right? I'm I'm in the Word in the morning, I just don't want to get out, right? I can't wait at night just to get right back into the Word. I love getting into the Word with my wife. (laughs) love getting in the Word. A Bible in the hand is worth two in the bookcase. A Bible in the hand is worth two in the bookcase to spend time in the Word. The reason practically that we struggle with that is uh, the cultural belief system today of humanism that really is seeking for us to find truth not objectively found in Scripture, but from um, humanity, from personal experience, personal opinion, somehow uh, elevating ourselves to what it is that we experience or learning from one another. And there's a value to learning from one another, but it's not the same. What we learn from one another is not breathed out Scripture. It can be as somebody is teaching Scripture. And I, I love human interest stories as much as anybody, and I 
celebrate as much as anybody what it is that humanity is able to accomplish. But I hear lots of folks who are, you know, binge-watching TV shows because I can relate to that show. Listening to music, I can relate to that music. Reading books, I can relate to that book. Listening to stories, I can relate to that. And so we find stuff that we relate to, but then offers us a secular and humanistic response to that. It's easy to find things that we relate to because we're all part of the same human condition. What Scripture does that is sometimes hard for us is that God asks the question and then gives us the answer. So people will say, I I wish God would speak to me. I'll say, well, he does. (laughs) Yeah, but he doesn't answer my questions. Say, well, maybe you're not asking the right questions. What Scripture does is presents the question and then gives the answer. So often we're not asking the right questions, and so we can't get the right answer. And so part of meditating on Scripture is letting God pose the question and then out of that fleshing out his answer. And so it is that Charles Spurgeon says, Christianity is a life which grows out of truth. Christianity is a life that grows out of truth. May our life be about truth. May our life be about all Scripture, God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Indeed, may the truth set us free. Amen.